The following is brought to you in part by MFC Studios. The views of the show's host and guests do not necessarily reflect those of the management, owners, or staff of this radio station. And now, it came from the radio. again to It Came From Radio, the official show of the Big Apple Con. This is your host, Mark Torres, speaking. I am here live on tape at our mobile studio. Um, this week, we're going to have a, a show we haven't done in a while. We're going to do a full-on interview show. Uh, this past weekend at the WinterCon, we had the entire cast of the television show Lex, and our senior correspondent interviewed each one of them very well, I might add. And also on top of that, we have an exclusive interview with actor Sean Ashton from Lord of the Rings fame, amongst other things. Not only that, we have another Bookworm Badson segment. So we have a chock full of show, a chock full of show. And we're going to take our break, and we'll be right back with It Came From the Radio. This is Quentin Flynn, a popular voice actor known for Axel Tamon. Uh, and riding from the Metal Gear series. And you're listening to It Came From The Radio. Stick around. Hi, you've heard my voice open and close the show. Now we want to hear your voice. If you have a business or product, you can record a commercial here. We offer 30 and 60 second spots. For more information, contact Mark at MFC underscore studios at hotmail.com. Hey guys, want to impress everyone at your next party? Shock them all with a custom cake. Anything goes. Classic wedding cakes to wild party themes. Follow my social media for weekly videos and photos. We're a Long Island-based cake shop. Custom Cakes by Christie Incorporated. K-R-I-S-T-Y. Call or text anytime. 631-606-8166. This is Gray Griffin, and you're listening to It Came From The Radio. Hello everyone, this is Envoy Comic Distributors, the independent distributor for independent minds. We represent some of the finest small press and self-publishers out there today. To learn more about us and our publishers, search for Envoy Comic Distributors on Facebook. And shop for us online at envoy.storeenvy.com. That's E-N-V-O-Y dot S-T-O-R-E-N-V-Y dot com. Have a great day. Hey guys, this is Kari Payton. You're listening to It Came From The Radio. So keep listening. Now, back to our show. This is Charlie Saladino from It Came From The Radio. I'm here and very excited to be here with Xenia Seberg, the star of Lex, one of the stars of Lex. And uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of things. Uh, first of all, how are you? Hello, everybody. Well, thank you very much. Um, this is Xenia, and I'm very happy to be on your show here tonight. And thank you. I'm very well. So what's your views on, on this particular convention? Are you having fun? I saw you guys on the panel. It was great. Yeah, we had a lot of fun at the panel. Actually, this has been the first convention we went to 
um, all together, like the four of us, like Brian Downey, Michael McManus, Ellen Dubin, and myself, uh, in 11 years. So the last one we all went to was uh, MegaCon in 2007, and now WinterCon in 2018. And we are having so much fun, and we are so happy that you know so many of our fans are still out there and actually came to see us here, and it just makes us very, very proud and very happy that they're still interested in the show and um, and so many questions have been asked tonight that were very intelligent and actually brilliant you know and uh, there's still the request and the demand that we'll somehow manage to at least do another miniseries or um, maybe like a final movie I know because like I I was I used to watch that constantly and uh, and it was a great show it was really a great show and uh, I wanted that to go on forever so maybe it'll do like a, uh, a Star Trek reincarnation yeah that's what we are all hoping for that we can get a reincarnation and uh, something else going again um, because it was a rare thing that actually the show didn't get cancelled by any network but our producers just after uh, the fourth season decided that the show should end so Paul Donovan decided okay that's it now we'll all finish and uh, like it was it got sold to so many countries like I think it was a, at some point 120 countries that the show got sold to uh, and like everybody has been asking ever since like why did you guys stop like why are you not on anymore or why didn't you do a revival and uh, so we got to make that very clear I guess to our producer and then need to figure out how we can actually make that happen that's beautiful now you, there is life after Lex for you because I know you're into so many, so many projects. Uh, first of all, um, you're singing. Um, second of all, uh, you you are an actress and and you're very good. And uh, so why don't we tell everybody what you've been up to since Lex and where they could uh, where they could get your uh, CDs and everything like that. Um, well, actually, of course, uh, like all of us, we've been on several other projects, like some, uh, some. Well, most of them actually TV movies that I did over in Germany that didn't get dubbed. So uh, that's going to be difficult for you guys. But then um, I also. Uh, as most people probably know, I did an episode of another show that um, that's also a long time ago. That was Total Recall 2070 with Michael Eason. Um, and then there was uh, another movie I did for the U.S., which was Annihilation Earth. Uh, that was in English. <laughs> we shot that um, in Bulgaria, and that one was great. And I wish I could see all the, the cast members of that movie again. But there was nothing like Lex ever since. Like all the movies I did or TV appearances I did in the past, nothing has ever been like the Lex show. So therefore, um, yeah, we really hope that the family will be together besides doing conventions also, uh, yeah, be working together. That's, that's beautiful. Now, where can they, uh, where can they see you on social media? 
On social media, it's uh, quite easy to find me. On Instagram, I'm the most active um, as Xenia uh, underscore Seberg. It's X-E-N-I-A underscore S-E-E-B-E-R-G. Or on Facebook, same name, Xenia Seberg. Xenia, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. We really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you uh, an, an endless amount of success. Oh, well, that's, that's very gracious. <laughs> thank you so very, very much. I was happy to be on your little show here and hope to talk to you again sometime. Yes, when they get Lex back on. All right, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. This is Charlie Saladino at the WinterCon. Back to you in the studio. Hey, I'm Mike Kingston, the writer and creator of Headlocked. And I am WWE Hall of Famer Jerry the King Lawler. And guess what you're listening to? You're listening to It Came From The Radio. Now, back to our show. This is Charlie Saladino from It Came From The Radio. I'm at the WinterCon, and I'm talking with, and very honored to be talking with, Brian Danny, the star of Lex, uh, one of the stars of Lex. And, uh, oh my God, they had a panel today, and it was such a great panel. I enjoyed it. So uh, let's everybody say hello to Brian. Brian, how are you? I'm doing really well here at WinterCon, man. I like being in New York City. Well, these this part of New York City, I haven't seen too much more than the inside of this room, you know, but so far, so good. Yeah. Brian, um, Lex is is receiving a warm welcome here. It, it should receive a warm welcome everywhere. Um, I know all the fans are dying for a rebirth of this. Um, and any, any vision of that happening? I, the, the first vision that comes to mind is dollar signs, you know, because it would take a hell of a lot of money to remount something like this. We were lucky enough to do it when uh, a lot of uh, computer-generated effects uh, and images were still in their infancy. We're talking like the, uh, the mid-90s, uh, which is why some of the effects look a bit dated today, and you can see the edges of things, and you know, but, but that was, that was uh, what the technology uh, we had to deal with back in those days. So in order to... Uh, started all up again we'd have to hire guys who could uh, create some more of those effects guys with the new technologies have a whole new set of camera operators uh, using new camera technology and uh, and we'd have to hire what do they call them writers writers yeah and uh, and that all involves a lot of uh, planning, a lot of planning, and uh, and a lot of money, and a lot of energy, and a lot of time. So, it's it's unlikely that that will happen. Right, and I'm telling you, it, it was such a great show. And uh, anything, tell our listening audience, because we watched that, and it's it's so cut and dry. Anything that you can think of that was one of the funniest moments on that show, uh, behind the scenes, anything happening? There were so many moments, because, you know, when you're, when you're uh, it's sort of like doing live theater, uh, but without the rehearsal, because uh, you just, you, you, you read your lines, you know your lines, you go into the, onto the shooting floor, and the director says, okay, and action, and that's your rehearsal right there, that's <laughs> the first thing, so anything can happen, but there were some kind of things you think, you, you know, you, you say to yourself, now that's something you don't hear very often. We were doing a, a, an episode in Germany, and they had maggots. They brought in a big bucket of maggots, and Stanley's on trial, and he's strapped to a, to a fixture so he can't move at all. 
and he's going to be fed these maggots, which is supposed to be, uh, they call them nerve bore worms. So they're going to be into Stanley's body, and they're going to eat him from the inside out. It's a really horrible thing. So here's the thing you don't hear very often. The director says, okay, let's glue some more maggots to the spoon and get ready to shoot. You don't hear, let's glue some yeah. more maggots to the spoon that's, and get ready to shoot? That's, Whoa, that's, I think I want to go home now. That's like on-the-job training. Yeah. Oh, my Lord, yes. Yeah. And there are many things that were sort of like that, you know, during the course of, what, four seasons and 60-odd, what, 66 episodes, something like that? Wow. Every day, 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, you know things are going to go wrong. You know things are going to be funny. You know things are going to be great. So you're such a good actor. I'm sure there's life after Lex. What have you been doing? Well, one of the things that people who watch Lex m probably might know is that uh, I got a, I got a chance to uh, act again with my, uh, with my old buddy uh, Rutger Hauer. We did a we did a movie which I thought was very very funny, uh, uh, interesting called Hobo with a Shotgun, and like Lex, it was one of those things where you know you're going to be working a long day, sometimes in very difficult circumstances. For instance, on Hobo with a Shotgun, uh, there was, we're shooting in, in an abandoned, outside an abandoned mental hospital with broken glass, old chairs, garbage, and we're going to have to be crawling around and all this stuff. And, and uh, again, you get the call sheet and you've got to start work at 6 at the night, which means you're going to be working until at least 6 in the morning, right through the night. The temperature is going to be um, the same. I'll give it Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit's going to be about like 41, 42 degrees. It's going to be cold. It's going to be foggy, and it's going to be, and you're going to be all covered in crap and everything. And you cannot wait to get there. <laughs> so that's what a lot of Lexus like too. You knew that it was going to be long. You're going to be in makeup all day long. You're going to be wearing a costume that's uncomfortable, and you're going to be in some strange circumstances. And you just can't wait to get there every day. As a matter of fact, I tell you this, man. Um, I still run into uh, some of the crew guys, the gaffers, the grips, the sound guys, you know, that, that worked on Lex. And it's been like almost 20 years. And every time I meet them, it's always like a Lex reunion. It's, and they say, they always say, without a single exception, that the Lex shoot was the best shoot they'd ever worked on. And these guys have worked a lot on a lot of different movies and TV shows. And they well, it did, it did look like a fun show. So, you know, it... Uh, it, it's a shame it's gone. A lot of fans are disappointed, and especially in America, because we have the BBC America now, which we love, so we see all the good shows. That's right, the BBC America, BBC in general, they, they produce some really wonderful stuff. But um, in fact, Lex is, the shooting has stopped. But it's like now in the digital age and with Roku and with Netflix and with YouTube, it's out there. It's out there. Oh, yeah. It's like Star Trek, which hopes it gets a, a reincarnation because it is it is out there like Star Trek was. And, you know, it, it's who knows? Who knows? Well, I say just, you know, it's, it's up to the fans. The fans ask for it. It'll, it'll happen. If enough people ask for it, it will happen because, you know, the, the whole thing in the end is about people making money, about producers and studios and, and all that. The, those guys want to make some money. And if they think there's a profit to be made, it'll come back. If they don't, it won't. It's quite as simple as that. It's a, it's, that's just the nature of the business. That's just the nature of the world these days. That's, that's, uh, hopefully, will that'll happen. Brian, where can people reach you? Where could people see your work, uh, social media, anything like that? 
I am so bad with social media. I'm really ashamed to say it. Oh my God, I'm Don't blushing. I'm blushing. Holy fish, man. No, I mean, I'm on Facebook, uh, uh, but I, I um, uh, other social media, no, not really. It's Facebook's about it. And oh, Well, that's what we're going for, Facebook. Okay. Do you want people to reach you on Facebook? <laughs> if they feel like it, sure, why not, man? I'm there. Yeah. I really I, I say no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a real pleasure interviewing you, and uh, hopefully just continued success. Thank you very much, man. Nice talking to you guys, and uh, enjoy all the rest of the Lex fans that are out there. Good luck to you. Thank you. This is Charlie Saladino, came from the radio at Wintercon, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Aaron Gray from Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, and you're listening to It Came From The Radio. Now, back to our show. This is Charlie Saladino from It Came From The Radio, and I'm very happy and pleased to be here with Michael McManus, one of the stars of Lex. And uh, Michael, how are you today? I'm fine. Just fine? Yeah, I'd say um, uh, fine, in a mood to head home after a, one of these strange science fiction conventions. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. It's crazy. Um, tell us, outside of Lex, um, how, what, what kind of experience was that for you? Lex. Lex. Lex was uh, kind of a, a very nice uh, experience for an actor. Uh, the show was shot in studio in Halifax and every year it was shot it traveled so we traveled to Iceland, England, Berlin several times, South Africa, Japan, Thailand. Uh, there was a trip to the British Virgin Islands which I didn't uh, participate in and th that means a couple of things. One thing it means is that rather than just getting a relocation fee to go be an actor in another town uh, you're always basically on tour so that has a lot of perks and benefits um, and working while you're seeing the world is just wonderful so doing a job somewhere you get introduced to people crew um, other actors uh, from these exotic places you're going to and uh, when the shooting's done they can take you around to see the things that are worth seeing that you'd never find if you were a tourist and that's always really pleasant um, the, the cast was uh, wonderful generous um, communicative, uh, helpful in a pinch. Uh, I found the design is obviously so imaginative and the design spans uh, several continents and, uh, and countries. Um, and the, uh, the creative team, the writing team, uh, were really onto something. And the only caveat I would put to all of that is that like so many things in Canada, um, you feel like if we could just gin it up just a little bit, we'd really get over the top and be world beaters. But we, I think we put out a very nice, interesting, multi multifaceted uh, cable TV show, um, kind of at the leading edge of what we're getting a lot of now, what a lot of TV is doing. It seems to me to be being very creative, uh, testing the limits of indulgence on series like Legion and uh, uh, Westworld um, and uh, American Gods. And I feel like Lex was kind of at the beginning of that sort of a movement to go like, what we can't just keep recycling the same narratives, qualities that seem outdated. Um, and the venality of Lex in the, that's embodied in the characters seems like that was our that was our 
twist kind of plug into sci-fi at a level that's a little bit less was a little bit less typical at the time and uh, I, I enjoy all that so everything that's come after that in the sci-fi world I just I'm a, I'm a keen audience for it and I really love watching what they're trying to do what they're trying to get away with uh, in sci-fi these days uh, Lex as far as sci-fi world was was an amazing groundbreaking uh, program um, life after Lex I, I know you're a accomplished actor and you have so many projects uh, let us know about them well I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I won't I won't get into too much detail because it's kind of personal but I by the time Lex wound up and uh, after after like a little while after Lex I'd say till about 2005 I was uh, maintaining my ways of kind of living like a, a, a refugee in terms of possessions and, uh, and and things that I had to move around from place to place to work and I was very peripatetic and I worked a lot and the combination of theater and and shooting something like Lex um, uh, all out of town uh, meant that by the time I was say 40 between 40 and 42 I felt like um, uh, I had had a lot of work hours and had very little else so I didn't feel like I was taking care of the people I loved or I was, I was uh, living my life to the fullest on the side of my my life of friends and loved ones and family and all that stuff so I it was right around the time my father died and uh, <clears throat> so I I kind of rescheduled my life at that point I was like I've just done all work so now I'm gonna do all life and I'll fit in work when I can because part of the thing about living like a refugee is you're just packing your money away and hope I didn't get burned in the 2001 bust or the or any of the busts um, when I was piling up money and not even paying attention to it so I found that I could um, have a quite an early and pleasant uh, semi-retirement which I've been enjoying to this day and it's been going really well so now I do the projects that I like and they tend to be like in the netherworld of culture like out in the edges um, in places like the caravan farm theater or uh, uh, Blythe Ontario or uh, I did an independent film in Berlin that I don't think anybody will ever see called Blisterstrasse. It's kind of interesting, but it's got some really off-color elements, and uh, I don't think the directors managed to put it in front of very many people since it was made in in 20, 2011, I think. Um, and uh, my pet pet project for the last couple of years, which is is do or die this winter, um, which has made me very available for things like conventions, which I've only done one other convention in 2007 in Orlando. Um, but my, my big baby project is a, is a one-person show um, based on the life and the expressions and the expressiveness of uh, Glenn Gould. Uh, a famous Canadian uh, pianist or piano player as you'd prefer to be called and um, uh, that show uh, was uh, conceived uh, jointly with uh, Paul Thompson an important director in Ontario and um, his concept if you can call it that or his notion for the show was that the whole show should come from the piano now when you're talking about one of the most virtuosic piano players who didn't even seem to come from the planet earth um, that's a very intimidating ask but I think there's a way to do it and I've been working on that and we uh, drummed up a lot of material through improvisation that's uh, recorded and written down and I think this winter is the time to like do or die with that show so I've got a director online and if she can't do it I've got a B director who definitely will do it although it'll be torturous and uh, we're gonna try and put that show up and I'm hoping it's one that has legs uh, because like we do so much disposable theater and so one project I did uh, fairly recently was a play by Sheila Hetty called All Our Happy Days Are Stupid and we did that at a small theater in Kensington market in Toronto called Video Fag, directed by Jordan Tannehill, and that theater is run by Jordan Tannehill. It's closed now because he's moved off to London to greener pastures in terms of cultural
culture. Um, and uh, we did that show there, and it got picked up by the International um, Theatre Festival in Toronto, which we did a year and a half later. We opened that festival, and then we were invited, and as part of that whole development of that show, we were invited to play at the Kitchen in Chelsea in Manhattan, and that was wonderful. That's the first time I ever played on stage in New York, and all, I mean, it's an art house, so it's not like being on Broadway or even off-Broadway, but it's a beautiful theater, and they run it really well, and the audience is astounding, like, so, so sophisticated, and... And, and they always look really good. And so a project that has legs is really pleasant, and that's what I really want this uh, Glenn Gould show to be, something that really runs. Well, best of luck with that. Um, all the best with that. Um, Michael, how can people uh, stay in touch with you, social media? They, I just just send it on the Nature Web's general delivery. Like at the moment, I have no Facebook, no Instagram, no anything. I've got an email address, and if, if you can find it, you can send me one. But it's Gmail, so it's tricky when it's a new uh, new uh, sender. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I think when I when I come out with a project that that I think uh, deserves to be discussed, then then I would bring myself to the to the public web at that level and, and discuss it. So I'm not going to be shy about things that I'm I'm moving forward with, but I'm definitely going to continue to be a little bit remote about what I'm eating for breakfast. Or uh... Beautiful. Michael, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and uh, continued success in the future. Okay, thanks a lot. Sword of Omens, come to my hand. I, Lion-O, command it. Hi, everybody, this is Larry Kenny, the voice of Lion-O on Thundercats. And you're listening to It Came From The Radio. Now, back to our show. This is Charlie Saladino from It Came From The Radio. And I'm here and honored to be here uh, with another star of Lex. And that is Ellen Dubin. And Ellen is an accomplished actress. And uh, she was um, one of the stars of Lex. And uh, we're going to talk to her now. Ellen, how are you? I'm great now that you're here. Because you make me laugh, and I love laughing. Good. I think that's the cure for everything anybody has is laughing. But um, anyway, oh, my God, you're so beautiful. You're an accomplished actress. Tell everybody, besides Lex, what other shows and movies have you done? Well, I've been very fortunate to keep my audience guessing, and I do a lot of things in every genre, from theater to film to television. I actually just finished my biggest movie I've ever done. It was a $250 million movie with Roland Emmerich, who did Independence Day. It's a World War II piece called Midway. You'll see it November 2019, based on a true story that happened in World War II, so I was really happy to do a period piece. I've done all kinds of video games, like Fallout 4 and Skyrim and Elder Scrolls Online and in uh, animation I'm working right now on Lego Star Wars playing Captain Phasma and I've done all kinds of interesting theater pieces you know everything from farce like Boeing Boeing opposite Peter Scolari who was on Bosom Buddies if you remember him with Tom Hanks and um, lots of sci-fi shows a nobility that's on Amazon right now and um, just keeping really busy yeah and for some sort of visual for the American audiences, you were in a cult movie that is still going strong. Tell everybody who you played in that cult movie. I think you're talking about Napoleon Dynamite. Yes, you won't go to the dance with that girl. I played Aunt Eileen, who made her daughter Trisha go to the dance, and there's the famous scene where Napoleon brings the picture. It's probably like if any mother would want her daughter to go to the dance after looking at that picture, she needs to go. 
to a cuckoo bin because I it was the worst picture. But to keep a straight face on that on that set was amazing. So yes, it was so fantastic to be part of the most iconic comedy of of the century, really. And I, I know about I, I think your audience would probably appreciate it. It's sort of like the little engine that could. It was made on a shoestring budget. The 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 stuff we ate on set was like Wonder Bread and Cheese Whiz, the squeezy kind, and apples. And it was the and we stayed in a crappy motel. There was no M; it's an hotel. And it was the most incredible experience I've ever had. And to be part of an iconic film like that, people have seen it over and over again. It can and it quote every single word. It's just so heartwarming. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. And just to stay on it for a second, one of the classic lines is when he says to her, he says to your daughter, yeah, I think it's really my best work. It took me three hours to get the shading under the lip right. And you made her go to the dance with him. How could you? I wouldn't, but that character would. She just wanted her daughter to get married, one of those mothers. She didn't care what the drawing looked like or what his afro looked like. I mean, wasn't that a great hairstyle? I got to tell you, he was such an incredibly focused actor, John Heater. The, uh, the only time I saw him was the first time I opened that door. And I consider myself a very focused actress. When I opened that door and saw him, there's a moment, if you really know me, where I looked down and then looked up because I was about to laugh my guts out. He's very funny. It was hard to keep his straight face. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I just love the character. I loved it. Uh, but we digress. Let's talk about your experience on Lex. I would say it was my first major job, and I have to tell you that when you can combine incredible cast and crew with such great chemistry and go to exotic locations and learn about the world like Berlin and Thailand and Potsdam and even Halifax and you work and you get to play at the same time I mean that's the ideal combo platter and Jigarada was a very unusual character at the time for a woman because women don't usually say what they mean it's a no holds barred ballsy chick who literally like a lot of men generally in that time, like 20 years ago, would play those kind of characters. I said whatever the hell I wanted as the character and just basically pushed people around and was so aggressive in a comedic way. And there was still a sex appeal to her because apparently the fans that are coming by today are going, I found you very sexy. I'm like, really? But I think they just liked it that they, I said what I wanted. And that was the beauty of the character that Paul Donovan created for me that no matter what went on, I was just me. I said what I believed and wanted to say. I mean, most of us wishes we could do that, right? Yeah. Well, your fans here love that. Uh, I think the Lex fans in America loved, loved that character, and uh, and you you very very notable. Note. Oh, sorry, rented lips. You're very, very recognizable. That yeah. was easier for me. You know what I meant. So anyway, um, any any funny experience on that show? Well, I, I think one other interesting thing about this, and then I'm going to get to you, is that what character gets killed off and comes back as another character, and then gets killed off, comes off as another character, and then comes back. I mean, Jigarada the Wicked 
queen, then I became a real estate agent in Miami, Florida, and then I became the pope. What creator gives a woman the job of a pope? Golf is the religion of the time and take Stanley Tweedle hostage and Rolf, who played the president, and shoots golf balls at them. I mean, that was in a temple in Thailand, eating fabulous curry in, the, in, the middle, in between takes. I mean, the whole thing was fabulously surreal. So I'd say going to Thailand and playing the Pope was amazing. And also, the other weird experiences, in season one, I wore a horribly tight, rubber latex, smelly outfit. Nobody wanted to be with me, nobody ate lunch with me. I was like an outcast. I come out of the water, there's a scene in season one where I come out of the water, sort of like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Everything fell apart. It literally soaked in water, soaked. It all, the spongy like, and came out and I smelt like a drowned rat. Everybody was like, so it was hilarious. And then they had to quickly design a new costume and they made it out of buckskin. So I'd say that's one of the funniest things that happened to me on the set. When it fell apart, no one would hang with me. <laughs> and the other thing was eating brains. People always ask me, you ate brains on the show. That was so gross. That was a moment that was not planned. So Paul says, the director says, eat the brains. So I eat the brains and it's gelatinous, rubbery with red strawberry jam. And I, the taste made me nauseous nauseous so I literally spit it out on the floor but I knew that fit her character I was a cannibal I didn't like that particular brain so that became a huge iconic moment in the show and Paul kept it and I went too salty and it was it was a weird salty sweet thing and they kept it so that was one of my favorite weird moments well I'm, I'm thinking I'm over here listening to you and going oh but I'm thinking it could have been worse you could have shot the brain scene right after you came out of the water that's oh that would have been a double whammy right yeah 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 <laughs> but anyway oh my god it was such a pleasure talking to you um, tell us social media where people could get in touch with you um, and uh, see what you're up to First of all, I'm very, very um, good with my fans. I respond to every single email. G-I-G-G-E-R-O-T-A 100. My character's name Jigarata100 at AOL.com. If you email me I will with questions, I will respond. IMDB. My Facebook page is a fan page, Ellen Dubin Actor. Twitter, at Ellen Dubin Actor. Instagram, Ellen Dubin Actor. You can find me easily. I'm very responsive. The fans, without the fans, we wouldn't be here. Well, Alan, besides being a beautiful lady, you are a beautiful person inside and out. And as I always say, in this world, it doesn't take anything. You don't have to pay anything to be nice. And you're one of those people who just ooze niceness. And I, it was a pleasure interviewing you. So let's hope for continuous success and that we talk to you very soon. Thank you once again, Ellen. I would talk to you anytime. How about tomorrow? Thanks. I got to get Tupperware now and come over your house. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs> this is Charlie Saladino from Came From The Radio. Back to you. Hi, this is Amy Jo Johnson, writer-director from the film The Space Between, and you're listening to It Came From The Radio. Now, back to our show. This is Bookworm Batson on It Came From The Radio. This week's book is The Furnace by Prentice Rollins. OMG. I read this graphic novel in about an hour. It was interesting. 
It was insightful. It was thought-provoking. Where do I begin? There's so much here. Um, in this book, it's in the not-so-far future, there's an experimental um, prison program where the prisoners are monitored by a drone called a guard. They can't see it because it maintains itself outside of their field of vision, and it renders the prisoner invisible to move about in society, but unable to interact. They are essentially human ghosts. I mean, imagine, if you will, being invisible. You're unable to be seen or heard. You're in, let's say, a self-contained isolation field, but you're able to see and hear. I mean, talk about cruel. That, that's, that's really cruel. I mean, this, this story is being told by one of the people involved in part of the program, and he regrets, he has regrets. Um, his consciousness, there's ethical issues with his decision to sign off on the program. So through flashbacks, you see his involvement in, the, in it. I enjoyed this novel a lot, but I felt that there was something missing. Um, the physicist here, his name is Walton, and he works with a friend of his, Mark, on this program. And for all of his regrets and for all of his, his misery and angst, for want of a better word, I felt like he wasn't trying to fix the problem that he helped to make. I mean, I get it. He's... He's guilty, he's drunk, he, he's trying to be a good dad, and, and he has all of these issues. But I kept thinking, what's he doing to try to help the remaining prisoners that have been consigned to this virtual hell, if you will? I mean, as a matter of fact, he believes, and I don't want to give anything away, at one point in time, he believes that his friend Mark was murdered by the government and what does he do? He throws away the only pieces of evidence and that's questionable linking him to the security problem. I mean I don't know. I get that maybe that was his idea of self-preservation but other than lament on how bad he felt about it he wasn't doing anything to resolve it. I, I felt like his character needed more development in the sense of, I made a mistake, let me try to rectify it. Maybe that's the happily ever after in me. I mean, I found the story very thought-provoking. It's unique. It's interesting. I liked it. I mean, not only did I like the story, but there was also some very insightful gems in here that had nothing to do with the story and everything to do with life. I mean, there's a part in here where he says, you know, um, it's just that to be a parent is to live in fear, constant, endless fear, because the world is what it is. And as a parent, I got to tell you, that was a gem. I mean, he has a bunch of, of gems throughout this story. Like, you pause for a moment and you go, you know what? This is so true. I mean, I'm going to give this graphic novel, I'm going to give it four guards. I like the visual. Um, the story was interesting. There was so much potential, but I felt like it needed a little something more to be a five. Maybe some representation for the prisoners, or maybe a less whiny main character.
This was a very cerebral book, and, and maybe I feel like what is missing is more heart. You know, I understood where they were coming from. I understood the debates on ethical issues, but it didn't allow me to connect or form a heartfelt attachment to any of the characters. I mean, it, the book, you know, there's there's a part where it says, you know, can any can someone ever repent for the sins of their past? And I kind of felt like if the situation is still ongoing, how repentant are you if you aren't attempting to fix it? I like this book. I recommend it. I recommend it heavily. I I dare say maybe there needed to be more story here. Maybe a little bit more. So I'm giving this one, like I said, four guards. If you want your book to be reviewed, send it to Bookworm Batson, care of It Came From The Radio, Post Office Box 134, Rosedale, New York, 11422. It's Morphin' Time! We'd like to take a moment to give a shout out and a big thank you to our Patreons. Two Sentence Horror. Jared Burrell. Danny Grillo. Ryan McDonald. Millie Portez. If you would like a shout out, become a Patreon. And you could do that by going to www.patreon.com. That's P A T R E O N. Patreon. And enter It Came From the Radio in the search bar. Now, back to our show. This is Charlie Saladino from It Came From the Radio. And I'm here. I'm very proud and honored to be here with one of my favorite actors of all time, Sean Austin. And I, I um, Rudy, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, we have marathons with that. Um, anyway, um, I'm going to ask you a couple, one question on Lord of the Rings. And then I want to go and ask you about your GoFundMe thing, because I think that's most important. Of all, so uh, in Lord of the Rings, Fellowship, how cold was that water when you chased Frodo into the and you were in full costume? How uncomfortable was that? And cold was that water? Charlie, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, you ask a question that is going to have a much bigger answer than you realize, unless you know it. You know it, and you're just pretending. All no. right. <laughs> so that was, I think that was called Lake Wanaka. I actually, I can't. I don't want to. I don't want to swear to that. It was an alpine lake in the bottom, or the southern part of the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, the water, it's glacier water, so it was ice cold. I mean, ice cold. The um, the day we filmed that scene where Sam goes running in the water after Frodo, uh, you know, we have our hobbit feet, the prosthetic feet on, and I go running into that water, and a piece of glass was sticking up on the bottom, and I and it punctured. I stepped really hard, and it punctured through the prosthetic foot, through my skin, and cut me all the way to the bone. So I, I stopped. I grabbed the side of the hull of the rowboat thing, of the canoe, and I just kind of gritted my teeth, and they knew. Peter Jackson knew right away something wasn't right. I didn't scream. I just went, Ugh. And then I kind of hobbled out of the water. They got an apple box, one of those little boxes they have on movie sets. I sat down on it. They brought the medic 
over, and everyone, you know, all of a sudden the movie stops. You know, everyone's in a big circle around you, and people are wondering and worried. And and uh, the medic, he has one of those scissors with the little silver ball on the end, so they can put it cut through, yeah, through your wow. pants without cutting. And he cuts the the prosthetic foot open, and a big blood clot that it pulled up in the bottom of the thing lands on the ground, and like it lands like a big bowl of jelly. Wow. And Elijah Wood has a stick, and he's flicking my blood clot with a stick. And Peter Jackson's like, Elijah, don't flick his blood clot. And I'm like, no, no, he can flick my blood clot. And the, guy, the medic is like, well, it's bleeding quite freely now. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to bleed out. And he was like, no, when it bleeds, then the dirt and infection stuff is going out as opposed to in. So then they called in a helicopter because it took an hour on a gravel road after an hour on a paved road to get to this set. So they flew in. A, the, the pilot was Jacques Cousteau's pilot. And, and my daughter, my wife and daughter were there. We all load up in the helicopter. It was their first helicopter ride. It was, at least it was Allie, my, our daughter's first helicopter ride. We flew out. That we landed at an outpost where it wasn't a clinic. It was a vet. It was a veterinary outpost. And we came in there, and I, they sit me down, and they take a needle that's like it was the size of a, of a of an elven blade, and they stuck it right in the middle of the wound to numb it, and then uh, and then they tied it up. And we went to dinner that night. I, normally, I would like stay home because I it was always tired, but but I went to dinner, and everybody was at dinner, and everyone was coming up to me saying, Sean, wow, so I can't believe you're out at dinner, blah, blah, blah. And I was back at work at 7 the next morning, and then Peter Jackson presented to me, on behalf of the entire crew, a Maori walking stick, a cane, uh, that uh, they, like, they, they, I was a part of the, you know, the the soil now because of that. And then I had the Weta, the uh, special effects company, use an, a, an awl, like a drill or whatever it's called, and they drilled Teanau, which is the name of the little town where we were, and the and LOTR on it. So I still have. If you walk like outside my bedroom, there's an little stand. Is that thing? So long long answer to a short question. I thought you were just going to say it's cold. I swear to you, I didn't know. The, mo the whole movie was about hobbits being in freezing cold water and and getting like near frostbite. Wow. That was the, in every in the wow. the the. Um, Dead marshes. The water was incredibly oh, cold. Like ever, it was just cold. We we was like you're not going to be allowed to take credit for working on Lord of the Rings if you don't suffer in cold water for a certain period of time. <laughs> My God, that was incredible. But Sean, I want to get to something that I think is very important, and I know you do too. And I think this project is amazing. Could we talk about your GoFundMe project? Yeah. So basically. I'm actually shocked that a lot of people don't know because it's very public and it's available to all. The world scientists, the, the, the United Nations has a, a United Nations Council on Climate Change and they published a report from like 900 scientists saying that within 20 to 40 years planet Earth is going to be have raised to a, a, a degree Celsius, half a degree Celsius more than it is now and the intensity of hurricanes and the intensity of fires and you know food shortages and mass migration and like they really painted a, a picture of hell on Earth um, destabilizing governments like it's really and we're talking 20 years from now we're talking you know Lord of the Rings was 20 years ago and and in that 20 years from now in my lifetime so you know their governments around the world are doing things actually the United States is the only government that isn't signed on to the uh, climate accord but whatever the governments are doing things the private industry is doing things there's a lot that's happening the one thing that I notice that isn't happening is that the public is not prioritizing this issue 
in a way that reflects the danger that we're facing. So the public is very, the American public, people in general, are generous. If there's a disaster, they'll jump on a GoFundMe and give money to help people in that disaster. For some reason, the environment doesn't capture people's imagination. The way it does some people, but not enough. What, what the climate scientists said was that it's possible to um, pull enough carbon out of the atmosphere to slow down this effect of global warming. But the problem is that no government, this is what they said, no government in human history has ever demonstrated they could work this quickly and this broadly. So they're basically saying, unless the world does something unprecedented in terms of its response, we're going to be suffering. And, and then the United States government last Friday, Thanksgiving Friday, uh, published six agencies uh, that they completely agreed with the climate science. So now there's no question about what's happening. But to me, so I've been thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. What, how, do you, how do you change the, the culture? How do you change people's mind? And what I realize is you have to pick something that is doable. You know, if I say, hey, I want you to you know, change your card. You know, we already recycle and stuff, and you know, private behavior is important. But if you say, like, I want you to do stuff, it's, if it's easy, if I said, give me five bucks, you just give me five bucks and let me see what I can do. I think I can help this this problem if you give me five bucks. And you get 100,000 people giving you five bucks, that's half a million dollars. You get 2,000, you got a million dollars. And all it did was it cost them five bucks. It wasn't a tax, it wasn't a government program, it didn't cause any, it didn't change the marketplace, it didn't do anything. It was just a guy gives you five bucks, 100,000 guys give you five bucks. That can't be that hard. So I came up with a plan. Um, there's a, a, a technology called uh, carbon capture and storage. And all it means is photosynthesis. We all study in eighth grade science. In order to make oxygen, the plants need carbon dioxide. So the problem is we've cut down rainforests and, and with our human development, we've, we've cut down so many trees and things that we're not, we're not capturing as much as we used to. And industry is, pollute, is sending out uh, uh, carbon dioxide into the air. So it's, we're losing on both ends, making more and taking in less. So what the scientists have said is here's a technology where if you plant replant, reclaim area with this, with, with, uh, with, with the right soil and stuff, you can actually capture, you can store some of the carbon dioxide that's in the air. So the thought is, okay, well, lots of, you know, there's these companies, a global uh, 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 carbon capture institute is working with cement factories and steel industries and rubber plants and like they're doing, they're working on billions and billions of dollar projects. But the one place that is not really activated is the individual. So what I said is, okay, what if there was 10 million houses that had the carbon capture garden on the top of it, the little strip of grass that you need? There's plenty of space. So you're flying into Chicago, and instead of seeing the white tops of houses for the last 30 minutes of your flight in, you're seeing cool houses that have a little patch of green on them. You've basically, uh, you've, you've recreated a rainforest on top of people's houses. And you go, well, 10 million houses, how the hell are you going to start to do that? I was like, okay, I'm Sean Astin, I'll do 100. Give me five bucks, and I'll go, and you got to give it to me fast. 
fast. Because what we need is to move fast. Give me five bucks today, and I'm going to very quickly put a hundred of those things up. And if we do, and we're going to maintain them for a year because it has to be maintained. So the people, the hundred families that agree to do it, they're not paying anything. They're just agreeing to let you use their roof. And then we're, that half million is going to install that feature, and we're going to maintain it for a year. And if we do it, and you go, oh, well, that business model is pretty easy. You gave me five bucks and a hundred things. So in the second year, we'll go out and we'll say, give me another five bucks. And, you know, if people can see that it's working, it can scale up. And before you know it, five, six years, you're going to have 10 million houses with it. But somebody has to start. Yeah. And so I'm starting, and, and uh, this it's called the... Um, Urban canopy. You think of a jungle canopy, how it, right. right? And the, the 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 Amazon forest has that jungle canopy. What if we did that in our cities? We create essentially a controlled canopy. Um, so, and it's Sean Aston. You just go on GoFundMe and give five bucks. That's all I'm asking. Five bucks, not ten. Not, there's a lot of people give more, and there's some rewards if you want autographs and that kind of stuff. But what we're doing, raising a half a million and putting a hundred. Uh, gardens on rooftops is only half of the equation. How we raise the money is just as important. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold, uh, I'm going to, I think on the, the 16th or something, I'm going to um, go to a television studio and I'm going to sit down at the desk and I'm going to sit there from 12 p.m. until 12 a.m. And if, and so far as of today, five days into the program, I think we've raised about $12,000 and I think we have almost 400 people who've donated. If we get to midnight, and we don't have the half a million raised, I'm going to um, delete the campaign. And so all those people, 400 people who gave that money, they don't, they, their money is refunded to them and, and that's it. And then that project didn't work. But then the world is, and the, the, the title of that day, the title of that, that little enterprise, that exercise that I'm gonna do is called, it's not about me. That's it, it's not about me. I'll sit here for 12 hours and it's not about me. If you want to do it, great. It's five bucks. And if and if you would rather watch 400 people who gave money to try and help an environmental project be disappointed because uh, the rest of the world didn't get on board with them, then that's that's your choice. But and, and you know things go viral all the time. Things that aren't as uh, important as they're important, but and maybe they're time sensitive. But other things go viral. T-shirts from celebrities go viral. So if this idea of this project, which is the first step in a journey of a thousand miles to having 10 million roof gardens uh, around the world, if, the, if, this, if that's not important to people, then they're going to have to live with that disappointment. Sean, I want to thank you so much, and I think this is an amazing thing. And if uh, nobody jumps on this bandwagon, there's something wrong with you people because you're just talking a good show. Here's your chance to do something. Yeah, so, this one doesn't. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's going to cause. It'll create you know 20 or 30 temporary jobs, but it like I said, it doesn't take any government money. So it's not like people's tax dollars are being wasted. And if you don't agree with climate change, it's 100 people have a little garden on their house. It doesn't hurt anybody. Sean, tell them how they uh, they do this once again. Just just go to um, just go to Sean Aston on uh, Instagram or on Twitter or on Facebook, and uh, or just go to GoFundMe and type in my name, Sean Aston, and and you'll 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 see the project. It's the Urban Canopy. 
Yeah, it's the Sean Aston Urban Canopy Project. So there you go. You can you can uh, put it up on your little site there too. So, but thank you. Thanks for the five bucks. I'll go out and try and help change the world. Sean, it used thank to be. It used to be when you were when I was younger. If you said that you could single-handedly change the world, people were like, oh, that guy's you know crazy. He's got delusions of grandeur. He's he's a total narcissist. Now, if we each one of us doesn't think that one person can change the world, a human life on the planet's not going to exist for that much longer. So you know, get get with the program, people. Sean, thank you so much. It's yeah. been a pleasure talking the to pleasure you. The pleasure was mine. My friend, you bow to no one. You bow, Oh, that's a line that always makes me cry. Oh, you? Yeah. Well, I was in friend. tears. Yeah. Charlie. A little bit of Charlie. We can make your day better. <laughs> All right. Take it easy, Sean. Thank you so much. Thanks, me Grimlock having fun on It Came From The Radio. Me Greg Berger also. Now, back to our show. And that about does it for this week on It Came From The Radio. Uh, join us right here and every week on this radio station. If you miss any part of this show, go online to www.itcamefromtheradio.com and listen to archives, which will be up in a week or so. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We have a YouTube page. Check that out also. Uh, make sure you listen to us on beyondthedawnstudios.com. We will see you next week. You've been listening to It Came From The Radio with Mark Torres. The views of the show's hosts and guests did not necessarily reflect that of the management, owners, or staff of the station. We now return you to your earthly scheduled broadcast.